At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign over all. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you realize that there might be a bit of a clash of where you are and where the culture around you is? I have a really distinct memory of really the first time that happened to me as an adult. It was my freshman year cultural anthropology class at Kent State University. And I had this professor who was incredibly bombastic and maybe a little bit full of himself. At least that was my perception of him at the time. And he was an interesting guy because he looked like Sean Connery, but he had this really thick German accent. One of those older, tenured professors who'd been around the block a bit. But I distinctly remember sitting in class one day, and as he was giving his lecture, he said these words. He said, evolution is definitely true. Now, that was not the surprising part to me. I knew that that reality, there's been debates, discussions in the world. It was the next phrase that came out of his mouth that made me realize I might have been in a bit of a clash. He said, evolution is definitely true, and don't give me any of your Christian nonsense or you can get the heck out of my classroom. He did not use such kind words in how he described that. And I remember sitting there, as a young Christian, thinking, wow, I am not welcome here. For a place that sure preached tolerance, that did not feel very tolerant. But it was clear there was a clash. What he believed and what I believed were different. And what I believed wasn't welcome in this place. Unfortunately, in the 20 years since then, and I'm dating myself by that statement, I've only seen that mentality grow more and more in our culture. What I encountered on a college campus has now become the norm around, around our world. Recently, in one of our Everyday Theology videos, we explored the idea of evolution and the reality of intelligent design. And just based on the comments that I got in the videos that were posted, it wasn't just, you're not welcome, it's, you're an idiot, you're dumb, you have no idea what you're talking about. The idea of what we believe as Christians in our world, it seems like there's only been an increased sense of, you're not welcome here. Don't bring that nonsense into this space, whether it's the workspace or community or the different places that we are. And when you find yourself in that sort of clash, that clash between yourself and the culture, it can feel extremely disorienting. Now, before we start to feel too sorry for ourselves, 
let's recognize that we are not unique when it comes to the cultures of our world. Our brothers and sisters and fellow Christians around the globe face this reality as well. Whether it's Christians in communist China or Vietnam, Hindu India, secular Europe, or the Islamic Middle East, most Christians exist in a space where the culture around them does not welcome what they believe. There is a clash. Not only is there a clash, there is an opposition to Jesus and his kingdom and his ways. Some of us are in harder situations than others. But although we're not unique, and although it can be a challenge for us and a bit disorienting, the good news is this isn't entirely new territory for the people of God. God's people have faced this before. And there's actually a lot we can learn about how we can be the sort of people that not only survive when we're in the midst of a cultural clash, but actually thrive. The book of Daniel records for us the stories and prophecies of Daniel and his companions when they were exported or exiled from the nation of Israel and brought to the nation of Babylon. In Babylon, the king and the court sought to indoctrinate Daniel and his friends in their way of life, their values, their practices, their philosophy. And yet, these were men who stood firm in following the way of Yahweh amidst a culture that was the antithesis of what they valued and what God called them to practice. And this book was written and recorded to encourage God's people that although all of us face cultures that seek to indoctrinate us in its values and practices and philosophies, that you and I can actually remain faithful to God's kingdom. And as I said, not only survive, but actually thrive when we find ourselves in that place. And so Ryan kicked us off in our series last week, but this week we're going to continue. And I'm excited to continue to learn together how we can be those sort of faithful people in the midst of cultural clashes. You know, one of the realities you face when you're in a clash of cultures is you face pressure. Pressure to conform and to adopt the values of the culture. I felt that pressure 20 years ago, sitting in that class. Don't follow this, follow this. And you face that pressure all the time if you follow the way of Jesus, as you navigate the world around you. And Daniel and his friends faced that pressure. But as we saw last week, they stood strong despite the cultural pressure. They were willing to stay faithful and committed. But how can you and I be confident when we face ourselves in those moments of pressure? How can we be confident that we can live as part of God's kingdom when it feels like the kingdom around us has all the power, all the truth, all the you name it, and it feels like they're winning the day? Well, today, as we encounter the second story in the book of Daniel, we're going to hear a story that actually provides the sort of motivation for you and I of how we can be confident when we face cultural pressures ourselves. And so we're going to dig into Daniel chapter 2. It's 49 verses long, so I'm going to move as quickly as I can through it. You guys know that's not always my gift, but I'm going to do my best this morning. 
And really, it comes to us in kind of four parts in this story. You introduced to the first part right away. Look at verse 1 of Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So reminder, Nebuchadnezzar is the king over Babylon at the time. He's the son of Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar was the one who brought kind of Babylon as an emerging empire. But Nebuchadnezzar, his son, would take over and would actually lead Babylon into kind of this global empire that it was. He would kind of take it to new heights. And he's a strong dictator. And he clearly, from the beginning, has a dream that leaves him troubled. I don't know if you've ever had a dream that left you troubled, but Nebuchadnezzar does. And so, it says in verse 2 that the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Now, real quick side note just for us, right? The text oftentimes will refer to Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans are a people group that originate in the Middle East. There's actually a number of Chaldeans that live in our area here in Metro Detroit. But when the text is referring to Chaldeans, Chaldeans in Daniel's culture were connected and associated with astrology. They were really strong astrologers. So if you have an NIV translation, they just translate it as astrologer. So when you hear that word Chaldean, don't think connection to the people group. Think connection to astrologer. Because what Daniel is describing is that Nebuchadnezzar is essentially gathering all the academic and religious leaders of his day to help him interpret the dream. He says in verse 3, the king said to them, I had a dream, my spirit is troubled. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Now this is the common practice in their day. Dream interpretation was normal. What would happen is if you had a disturbing dream, you would bring it to them, you would tell them the dream, they would go back to their kind of history and commentaries, and then seek to develop an interpretation of what you had dreamed. But in this case... Nebuchadnezzar lays a unique challenge. So I'm going to skip just a little bit of these verses, just give you a summary. He basically comes to them and says, I'm not going to tell you the dream. And if you can't tell me what the dream is, then I'm going to kill you. That's what's going to happen. I told you, he's harsh. Like, he's, he's strong. And the Chaldeans kind of come back and say, hey, we can tell you the dream. Just We can interpret the dream. Just tell you what it is. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to tell me what the dream is and then give me the interpretation. Now, the Chaldeans then in verse 10 kind of raise the tension within the story. Look at it. It says, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or a Chaldean. The, king, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So there's your key statement. What you're asking for is impossible. It is going to take divine intervention for us to do what you want us to do, which is to tell you what you dreamed without you telling us, and then give you an interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is furious, so he orders the destruction of all the wise men in Babylon. He said, you guys don't get it, that's it, I'm done with all of you, I'm killing all of you. Included in that group is Daniel and his friends, who we were introduced to in the first chapter. And so one of the king's guards come to Daniel and says, hey, time to go. Off with your head. And Daniel says, whoa, what's going on, right? And so Daniel responds, and look at verse 14. 
to him and says, Daniel replied with the prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now notice, Daniel encounters this cultural clash, and he responds with the text says, with prudence and discretion. He's wise and slow and intentional. This is actually necessary whenever we face cultural pressure and cultural challenges, right? Part of living in a cultural clash is pursuing wisdom and prudence. This is why Jesus would tell his disciples that you need to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We should pursue wisdom as God's people. But then Daniel acts on faith. He goes to the king, he says, you name a time and I'm going to give you the interpretation, which is a pretty incredible thing for him to say, since no man can figure it out. But look what he does. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Now, in this book, you have different names used for the same people. Sometimes you have their Hebrew names, and sometimes you have their Babylonian names. So, Hazariah, Mishael, and Azariah are also referred to in the book as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel his Hebrew name is referred to at times as Belteshazzar. So it's the same people. It's Daniel and his companions, just clarifying that. But he goes to them and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven, verse 18, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel goes to seek an answer to the king's dream. But notice that he does this in community. He doesn't do this by himself. He gathers his closest friends and he says, let's pray and let's seek God that he might have mercy and reveal the dream so that we don't get our heads cut off. And God responds, verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And in the next several verses, Daniel begins to praise God. And this is key in the book. In fact, one commentator says this is a theological center of the chapter. And he praises God for several things. The first thing he praises God for is God's wisdom. Look what he says. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Daniel gives God praise that God is wise. He's wise in that he's sovereign over all things. He's wise in that he knows all things. And he's even wise in that he sees what others do not. What is in darkness, what no man can see, God can see. And Daniel celebrates God for his wisdom. But not only that, he celebrates that God gives his wisdom. Look at 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known, now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. He praises God not only that he's wise, but that he gives wisdom, that he answers prayer and provides what is needed. And from the very beginning of the story, we're reminded that we can have confidence in our cultural clashes because God's wisdom is greater. It's greater than any human wisdom. Our God is wise. He knows from beginning to end. And he provides and gives 
wisdom to his people. Daniel makes it clear there's only one who has the wisdom to reveal the dream, and he does it. Where human wisdom fails, God's wisdom prevails ultimately. It comes and shows and makes clear what no one else can. This is often what God's wisdom does. He provides things that we cannot see in our human wisdom. Our human wisdom is limited. But God, in his infinite wisdom, can give to us a wisdom that is greater. Looking back on my own life, I remember distinctly when when God was gracious to me in this way. Right after um, I did an internship at a church back in my hometown of Akron, um, Ohio, at the end of that internship, I do what most people do at the end of an internship, I started to look for jobs, right? And, um, and, and so as I, I sought to look for jobs, um, I uh, applied for a job and ended up getting offered a job at a church in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, it was to work for kind of a burgeoning church. They were growing rapidly. They were looking for someone to kind of lead their service for, the, for their younger um, members. And um, it, it was like one of those dream opportunities when you come out of an internship with very little experience to kind of be given that. It was like one of those like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is like actually an, an opportunity. But right as they offered me the job, the church I was working for also offered me a job. And they offered me to come and to start a young adults ministry that didn't exist. And this was a church that was in the midst of transition. They just transitioned from their tenured senior pastor to new senior pastor. And so it was kind of like a, hey, we want you to come and kind of start something for us. And I remember in that time praying and asking God so much, God, would you help me? I, I had like my pros and cons list. And this was like fast track dream opportunity, but this was the church I'd worked at and I knew, and where was I supposed to go, and what was I supposed to do, and I wrestled, and I wrestled, and I wrestled, and at some point, I just hit this limit where I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I cannot, my wisdom has reached its end, and I sought counsel, and I asked from people, and they were praying, but finally one night, I was just like, I just, I just need to hear from the Lord, and so I went out, and I took a walk, and I just prayed, God, would you Help me to understand what's right, what's your path, where do you want me to go? And I very clearly remember, God spoke to my heart and he said, if you stay, you will stay to learn. If you go, you will pursue what you want to pursue. He didn't give me an answer, he gave me a choice. Okay, thanks God for that, appreciate it. Usually I just like it better if you tell me where to go. But it was his wisdom. He showed me very clearly where these paths were going to lead. And at the end of the day, I made the choice to stay and learn. Not because I'm a great or whatever. That's just what I felt was right. God was gracious to me. There's many times I've operated in discerning wisdom in my own flesh and paid the consequences for it. So don't hear me like I'm some hero of the faith with Daniel. This just happened to be a moment where God showed me something. But I remember, and I distinctly remember thinking back and thinking, God had wisdom that I couldn't see. But as I sought him, he was gracious to reveal. That's the sort of God he is. He has wisdom, but he is a God in his great wisdom that is willing to reveal with it as we seek it. Sometimes that takes time and discernment and community and patience. But God is not a God who is seeking to withhold his wisdom. He's a God who's seeking to give his wisdom. And scripture reminds us of that time and time again. Right? We have a whole book on wisdom. It's called the Proverbs. And it begins by reminding us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's in awe of him and recognition of him that wisdom and understanding come. 
Paul would remind the church in 1 Corinthians 2 that we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. God has a wisdom that humans cannot access apart from his spirit. James 1.5, one of the great promises in Scripture, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God is not the God who sits with his wisdom, stingy, going, Man, maybe I'll give it to you. We'll see. No, he gives generously and freely to those who seek. He longs to pour out his wisdom, not only in his word, which gives us wisdom for life, but he also, by his spirit at times, gives us wisdom when we're in those places of challenge, when we're feeling that pressure, when we're not sure. That's the sort of God that he is. He is a God of wisdom. His wisdom is greater, and he seeks to graciously give it. So are you faced with a challenge in your life? Have you sought God's wisdom? Have you prayed? Have you gathered a community around you? Or are you relying on human wisdom? Because that's limited. It has its end. If God is wise, and he is, then we should seek his wisdom. He loves to give it, and his wisdom is always greater. But the story now continues. Daniel goes to Arioch. He says, don't destroy the wise men of Avalon. Take me to the king. I've got the dream and the interpretation. So Daniel does that. He comes to the king, and he says this in verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. Catch this again. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of my, any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel comes to the king, and notice who Daniel attributes wisdom to, not himself. He's not, oh, look at me, I'm better than these guys. I'm smarter, I'm more intelligent. No, I serve a God, right? When God grants you wisdom, he also grants you a testimony. The ability to point back and say, no, it's God who's revealed this to me. And so Daniel testifies to God's gracious wisdom. But notice the second thing, before we get into the dream, which we will in a second. Notice how Daniel approaches the king. He approaches him with honor. One of the things that you're going to notice throughout each one of these stories is that even when these men are faced with challenges, right? Daniel's life is on the line. They act honorably towards those who are in charge. They don't act out of spite or arrogance or dishonor. They hold their honor. They don't always bow to them. They don't always give in. We saw it last week. They weren't going to take the king's meat but they still act with a sense of honor, right? Go back to that idea. When we're in cultural challenges, it can be easy out of frustration and pressure to move towards dishonor. But these men hold their honor in order to display the truth of God and who he is. And Daniel acts like that towards Nebuchadnezzar in this situation. I I think it's actually an important part throughout all of these stories. Then, 
Verse 31, he begins to tell the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. So Daniel now knows the dream. He gives the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And here's an image of what Daniel pictures in kind of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, so you can kind of just hold that in your visual mind. But he not only gives the dream, he now moves to give the interpretation, right? Look again at 36. Now, we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these and as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron it shall be a divided kingdom but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle as you saw the iron mix with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar not only the dream, but also the interpretation. And the interpretation of the dream is that this image made up of these various metals is actually representative of a series of kingdoms that will follow Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Each metal kind of recognizing the uniqueness of these kingdoms. Now, in understanding Daniel's interpretation, I think there's two ways to understand it that are important for us, that have meaning for us. One is to recognize its historical prediction. The second is to recognize its theological prediction. So, first, the historical prediction. The reality is that what Daniel pictures here, many traditionally understand as the empires that will follow the Babylonian Empire. Babylon is pictured as the gold head. What would follow after Babylon that would come and take over its power was the Medo-Persian Empire, which would rule and reign over the world for a number of centuries until a man named Alexander the Great would lead the Greeks to establish the Greek Empire, which would spread Greek culture all around the world and would rule as an empire for several years. The Greeks were ultimately upended by 
the Roman Empire. And what was the mark of the Roman Empire? Its military might. It crushed its enemies. But ultimately, Rome would be a divided empire with a series of kings that ultimately would end up falling in of itself. And so many traditionalists look and say that what Daniel pictures here is actually historical. From the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. And who came during the Roman Empire to establish God's kingdom? Jesus. So there's historical precedent that what Daniel predicts and interprets, the dream is given by God to point towards history and the establishment of God's kingdom. But, like I said, there's a historical interpretation, but it's also a theological interpretation. The dream is also meant to remind us that the history of the world from the beginning to the end is filled with subsequent human empires and kingdoms. Empire after empire, kingdom after kingdom, one giving way towards another. But ultimately, there's a greater kingdom, one not established by humans, by God himself, that when established, fills the entire world. And that kingdom cannot be shaken, and that kingdom will not end. And so even the dream is meant to remind us that we can be confident when we face a cultural clash, because not only is God's wisdom greater, but his kingdom is greater than all other kingdoms. And there's two pieces of encouragement for you and I, and anyone, wherever they face the challenges of culture around them. The first piece of encouragement is this, the impermanence of human kingdoms. Human kingdoms are temporary. They are not permanent. They do not last forever. And what the dream reminds us is, is that no human kingdom stands eternally. They're all temporary, one giving way to another. Therefore, don't bow to them. Don't adopt their values and practices. They're not what's eternal and lasting. They're not a kingdom that will go on forever. And when you look at the history of the world, what you realize is that what is pictured in Daniel chapter 2 is true. Human kingdoms are temporary. They do not last. Where is the Babylonian empire and its great hanging gardens? Left in rubble, you can't even find it. A note in a history book. Where's the Greek empire? Or Rome, the eternal city, as it was called. I went there in the spring. You know what it is? A big pile of rocks. Their culture left in shambles. Or the Ottoman empires dismantled. They said the sun never sets on the British Empire. Newsflash, it sets today. Or the Third Reich established by Hitler, a reign for a thousand years. Didn't even last 20. What about our empire? Is it eternal? No. No kingdom is eternal. No lasts forever. So don't bow to them. Don't give them your allegiance. Don't make them your values and practices. They're temporary kingdoms. One will give way to the next. But there is a permanent kingdom. And that's the second encouragement. That there is a kingdom that is established that will not be thwarted by any human kingdom, that will not be stopped, that will fill the entire world. God's kingdom is a kingdom that will conquer all other kingdoms. And this is exactly what Jesus came to establish. 
That's why he begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1. He announces, the time is at hand. Or the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That he came to establish God's rule and reign, not through military might, but through humble sacrifice and dealing with human sin. And his is a kingdom that cannot be stopped. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is a kingdom that fills and is continuing to fill the entire world until every tribe and nation and tongue and people is invited into this kingdom. And if you think about it, from the very get-go, the kingdoms of the world have sought to stand in opposition to that kingdom and yet no one has been able to stop its progress. Not the Jewish authorities at the beginning, not the Roman authorities, not Nero and his persecution, not the history of kingdoms or communism or secularism. Nothing has been able to stop that kingdom. It grows and continues. Think of all the persecution that God's people have faced. This Christmas, a friend of mine gave me this book, I haven't started reading yet, but I'm excited to. It's a new rendition of Fox's Book of Martyrs, put out by the Voice of the Martyrs. And in this book is story after story of faithful brothers and sisters who followed the king despite incredible cultural pressure. Because the kingdom of God will not be prevailed over. And so Daniel's dream, or Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel reminds us in his interpretation, is an encouragement. Follow the kingdom that is permanent, that is greater than all other kingdoms, that cannot be stopped, that is being established now and in Jesus' return will be established forever. Don't bow to other kingdoms. Bow to the true king. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on this passage in Daniel, I think gives us some encouraging words when he writes. But then this dream interpretation also speaks to us in our fears. Right? There's fear that comes when you're in cultural pressure. There's fear that comes to bow down to what you're being asked of. It says to us, don't be impressed with human political power, no matter how ironish it seems, or it appears. It is all so fleeting. Do not fear it. Daniel's 2 says, look at it square in the eye and repeat after Jesus. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus has a coffin for every empire and every emperor. The only true security is in the kingdom of the carpenter's son. So what kingdom will you bow to? What kingdom will be your foundation for your life? What wisdom will you follow? What will you seek to practice? Daniel reminds us, practice and follow the king and the kingdom that is eternal. And be reminded that not only is God's kingdom greater, but his authority is greater as well. Look how it ends. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Stop for a moment and recognize the uniqueness of this moment. God has moved in power, shown himself in revealing the wisdom of the dream, and the most powerful man on the entire planet falls down before a Jewish exile. 
You see, when God shows his power, there is no authority that can stand in front of him. And Nebuchadnezzar fall down before Daniel, and look what he says in 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. He acknowledges God's authority and greatness. He says, of all the spiritual authorities, yours is the highest and the greatest. Of all the earthly powers, yours is king of all of them. You see, when God shows himself, there is no power and no authority that can stand. They all fall at his feet because he is the greater authority. He is sovereign over all. He is the true king and the true Lord. There is not one power that can stand against him. And there is no greater testimony to the power of our God than the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. For just in the moment when you thought the great powers that stood against him of Satan, sin, and death had won a victory, he emerged from that tomb and he announced, I'm alive, no one will conquer me or my kingdom. And that's why one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord because there is no authority greater than his. He is greater. And because he's greater, he's in control. One of the things I love about Daniel chapter 2, and I love about scripture in general, is the way it builds and connects with the previous stories. When you read Daniel chapter 2, you're naturally reminded of another story. Another man who was under the pressure and power of another global empire. And another king who had a dream that he interpreted. Many of you are familiar with the story of Joseph. And I was reading, I was brought this by one commentator this week. It was just such an incredible reminder to me and just such a picture. That before God's people had entered the promised land, God was already in charge of a global empire putting Joseph exactly where he should be for exactly the right purpose. And even on the other side, when God's people had been disobedient and exiled from the land, here's God again, still in charge, still revealing dreams, still showing his authority. And what we're reminded is God doesn't need a kingdom on earth to show that he's still the one in control. he's in control at the front and he's in control at the back and if he's in control of Pharaoh and he's in control of Nebuchadnezzar then certainly he's in control of your life and certainly he's in control of those who are in power in our culture because at the end of the day brothers and sisters God is simply greater period and because he's greater we can have confidence we can have peace no matter the pressure we face externally or even the pressure we face at times internally. He's the one who is in control. And just when you think everything is out of control, that's when he loves to show up and remind you, no, I got this. I'm in charge. And because of that, we don't have to bow to the pressure of our culture. We don't have to be like them. We don't have to follow its values and its practices. We can stand firm and be a different sort of people who are marked by a different sort of kingdom. We're about to enter into one of my least favorite times in our culture. 
election season. And part of the reason I don't love it is the natural anxiety that just seems to build all around. The, the way the language, the attacks, the doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on here and as Christians we should be politically engaged don't hear me say that I think that we shouldn't but it but it just reminds me how much hope people put in human kingdoms that if this guy's in charge he'll be our savior or if that guy's in charge he'll be the antichrist and we'll be doomed forever but if what Daniel 2 says is true whatever comes November you know who's still in control the King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, you and I, we don't have to be anxious. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved. Doesn't mean we shouldn't speak for righteousness and justice and truth. But we don't have to buy into the culture around us. We don't have to attack and demise and demean. We don't have to put act in ways that are dishonorable. We can be different because we have a God who's in control. He's in control of our empire. He's in control of every empire, and he's in control of our lives. So we can be confident. Don't bow to the ways of the world. Put your faith in the one who is greater, who has a greater wisdom, who has a greater kingdom, and who has greater authority than any other power. And as you do that, as you put your faith in him, you'll be able to stand firm and experience a life unlike any other. So let's put our faith in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me pray for us. Father, we pause for a minute, even at the end of just this text, to acknowledge your greatness. That you are higher you belongs all majesty and power and authority wisdom and understanding that's who you are we give you praise we bless your name for the god that you are this morning and even now as we just hear the call of daniel 2 to be reminded of your sovereignty that you're in control of all challenges us to trust in our faith because we face pressure we face circumstances. We face challenges. And so I pray this morning, God, that as we respond to this text, you would use this as a moment to just encourage faith. Even as we sing, prepare to just sing and be reminded and celebrate the victory that is in Jesus and in the reality of his death and resurrection. I pray it just be an opportunity for us to be encouraged to reaffirm our faith and trust in you despite whatever we might be facing. And then to respond like Daniel does in just praise and worship. So Holy Spirit, would you come now up, stir the hearts here towards greater faith, greater trust, and greater worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect.
to introduce yourself today.